If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 16th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack there in front of you. Please feel free to use that as you have need. I was reminded this past week how much the world needs what we have. I came to the office early on Friday morning, uh, the day of Senator Reverend Pinckney's funeral. And unbeknownst to me, the line for the funeral was forming right here on the corner of Wentworth and Meeting, right in front of Justine's kitchen. Well, I got here early before 7 o'clock, and already a line had formed uh, down the walk toward King Street. So I was trying to think what I could do to help, and I walked up to the officers who were there at the blockade, and I pointed to the building, and I said, look, the sanctuary will be open, the air conditioning will be on if people need to sit for a while. Our educational building will be open for restrooms and water as people have need. So I came back to the office, and before I could get my first cup of coffee made, the people started to come into the building. And they were absolutely overwhelmed, and they said, thank you for such an act of kindness. And I assured them that all I did was unlock the building and let them in. But I mean, man, Jesus knew the power of a cup of cold water. Well, anyway, I stood on the sidewalk throughout the morning to kind of welcome people and and direct them into the facility. I stood there in this wonderfully cool breeze, believe it or not, was blowing from the river right down Wentworth Street all morning. And that was a very sad day. It was such an awesome moment of community for me. I looked around at all these people and I thought, you know what, we are really truly in this together. But then that idyllic moment was suddenly broken by a loud, sharp woman's voice. So I walked down the street to see where the voice was coming from. And there in the bank beside us was a woman in her brand new Mini Cooper, and she was at the drive through window. And when she saw me, she motioned to me and she said, why is that fire truck blocking my lane? I said, well, ma'am, you know, there, there's an important funeral going on. There's maybe a thousand people lined up there right now. And these firefighters have come to kind of help with the crowd. And, and there was no place else for them to park. And so they parked there. And she said, well, now I'm going to have to back up and go out the other lane. Well, that's fine for me. But what about the person who comes after me? I didn't say a word. The woman did that. She backed up and she went out the other lane. But she didn't just drive off. No, 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 no. She paused and rolled down her windows and got the attention of the firefighters who were diligently doing their job. Why is your fire truck blocking my drive through lane? They said, well, ma'am, and they responded similarly uh, that I have. They said, it's a very unusual day. To which she threw up her hands and said, whatever. And she literally squealed her wheels as she pulled out of the bank. I, I couldn't get my mind around that. Truly. I thought... This woman couldn't enter into the moment at all. She couldn't just be part of the community. She could only think of herself and her own needs and her own inconvenience. Me, 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 me. So I read this article in the New York Times. It's entitled The Age of Individualism. It was in the Sunday Review. And the article said that in the future, it seems, there will only be one ism, individualism. And its rule will never end. 
As for religion, it shall decline. As for marriage, it shall be postponed. As for ideologies, they shall be rejected. As for patriotism, it shall be abandoned. As for strangers, they shall be distrusted. And so the writer of the article goes on and asks whether this level of individualism is actually sustainable through the cycle of life and whether it can become a a dominant uh, way of life in a culture. Well, he goes on to argue a possible no for that question, and this is what he says. The human desire for community and authority cannot be permanently buried. The human desire for community and authority cannot be permanently buried. So if the need for community, if the need for authority cannot be permanently buried, if people cannot forever sustain a life apart from community and authority, what's going to replace individualism? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked that question. Would you like me to answer it? That's where you and I come in. That's where the truth of Deuteronomy 16 and 17 comes into play. Because we will fight against the shallowness, we'll fight against the emptiness, we'll fight against the unhappiness. Trust me, that woman at the bank was not happy. We'll fight against that individualism by being the community that God has called us to be. By being the community that God has called us to be. And by offering that community to others. But in order for you and me to be the community that God has called us to be, we've got to submit our own lives, our own community first to his truth and his structure and his authority. Then we together as a community can make a difference in that community for Jesus' sake. Psalm 68, 6 tells us that God sets the lonely in families. God doesn't want people to be alone, to live a life of individualism. What person? What people? Living now a life of isolation, living now a life of individualism, might God settle among us right here at Redeemer? If you have your Bible open, I'm going to ask you to stand as we come to the Word of God and hear the truth that God has to speak to us. Once again, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you. And they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. And now, chapter 17, verse 8. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the priests, who are the Levites, and to the judge who sits in office at that time. Inquire of them, and they shall give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they direct you to do. Act according to the law they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you to the right or to the left. The man who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God must be put to death. You must purge the evil from Israel. 
All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would fulfill your promise where your word is read, that you would bring blessing to it. So bless us this morning with understanding of your word and your truth. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would open our eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to grasp and be willing to embrace the truth as you reveal it to us this morning. Lord, we long to live transformed lives before you, lives more in line with the people that you call us to be. Lord, we long to be about more and more the things that you have called us to do. So we pray that you would bless us toward that end and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, we need to be, you need to be reminded from time to time why we are studying the book of Deuteronomy and why we are spending so much time in it. Some of you are so new to Redeemer that you think this is the only book that we study. You don't even have to be that new to Redeemer to believe that this is the only book that we study. But some of you are so new to this community as well that you don't even know our remarkable story. You don't know how God intervened on our behalf just two and a half years ago to to rescue this building, to prevent this sanctuary from being gutted and turned into a five-bedroom residence that would have a wet bar right here. And a dining room table right there where the Lord's table is now. He allowed us to rescue the building next door. Prevent it from becoming offices and condominiums. And though we are still paying for this space, God is faithfully providing for us so that we are ahead of schedule in our payments for the building. Because of all that God has done for us. All that God has done for us. We are convinced that he wants us in this place to be a gospel presence in this community. He wants worship to continue from this place in the heart of the city. He wants songs of praise to continue to emanate from this building out into the streets. He wants the gospel to continue to be proclaimed from this pulpit. He wants people of all ages to continue to have their lives transformed by studying the word of God here in this place. We believe we shouldn't be here. And yet this is where God has planted us. This is God's doing. Now that's where you say, amen. God, in spite of my too often naysaying, in spite of your too often naysaying as well, he is still at work in the city of Charleston. He's doing beautiful things that we could not even imagine that he would do. Well, the people of Israel, the people gathered on the plains of Moab, these people among whom we have been spending time for almost two years, they were to be God's planting. He chose them to be his people. And the place he chose for them was the promised land. That's where he would plant them. And before God planted his people in the land that he had chosen for them, in order to enable them to be the people that he was calling them to be and to do the things that he was calling to do, he gave them these last instructions contained in the book of Deuteronomy. These are words of preparation 
so that God's people will be blessed in the land that he's planting them. These are words of preparation so that God's people will live well in the land in which God is planting them. These are words of preparation so that God's people will live justly and so that they will love mercy and so that they will walk humbly with the Lord their God and acknowledge him as the source of every blessing in the land in which he is planting them. And through God's people, living well in the land, the nations, the world around them will be blessed. So we desire here at Redeemer, we should desire nothing less for ourselves as God's planting in this community. We, like the ancient Israelites, were nomads for a while. We were in one place and then another place, roaming around, tent people, until God graciously planted us here in this community. How do we appear to this community? How can we be a blessing to this community, including the woman at the bank, in which God has intentionally placed us? Listen, God's plan never changes. And his plan is to buy back, to reclaim, to redeem those who traded a beautiful relationship with the one and only true and living God for a piece of fruit. And in that earthquake-like eruption caused by the first sin to ever enter God's perfect world, a spiritual tsunami was produced that would sweep across the course of human history and devastate it with more sin and inevitable death. But in that horrific moment of that very first sin, God began to reveal his plan of grace. He didn't write Adam and Eve off. He didn't cast them aside. He didn't wash his hands of them. He didn't leave them to drown in their own sin. He did not leave them forever in the grip or the possession of sin and the evil one. No. God promised in that moment that one would come who would crush the head of the evil one and his power. And God knew in that moment that another earthquake was coming. An earthquake that would shake the earth and split it open when Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross. Followed by another earthquake as the power of God began to cause the earth to shake and to rumble. And when God by his power, brought back from the dead, Jesus Christ. That power, God's power, would redeem. That power would buy people back. God promised, and he has been faithful. So we call ourselves Redeemer Presbyterian on uh, on purpose. Now, people think that we call ourselves Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Why? Why? Yes, because Tim Keller named his church Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And that's true. And I love Tim Keller. But in reality, our name is our message. We need to be redeemed. That's our message. And we have a Redeemer. That's our message. Jesus has bought us back. He has purchased us and he has presented us 
to the Father as his sons and daughters. The community around us needs to be redeemed as well. They need to be bought back. They need to be rescued from sin. They're not living the good life and don't believe for a minute that they are if they are living life apart from Christ. They should not be left alone in isolation. They should not be left alone to live a life of individualism as they please. They need to be redeemed. There is a Redeemer, and they need to hear about that Redeemer from whose lips? Our lips. So that's why we are studying Deuteronomy. I know it's the Old Testament. I'm aware of that. But God doesn't change. His heart is the same. His purpose is the same. And that first plan, that plan that he first revealed in the Garden of Eden, he brought to fulfillment in Christ. And so you and I, if we will capture the truth of God's unchanging plan, if we will embrace that plan for ourselves, if, if we will look for the heart of God revealed even here in the Old Testament and embrace that heart and long to copy that heart in our own lives, we will be blessed and the community around us will be blessed as well. Now listen, I've worn you out and that's just the introduction. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's just the introduction. See, see, I've been watching these African-American preachers this week and they know how to preach and that's what they do. So we come this morning to Deuteronomy 16 and 17, looking for God's plan, looking for God's heart. And we see very clearly when we look in these chapters that what, is, what God's plan is and what is on God's heart is that his people live together in community. That's what God wants for us. That's his plan because God loves us. Never forget that he's the one who created us. And so he knows how we are made and we need community. He did not design us to live isolated lives. He did not design us to live lives of individualism. That's not how he designed us. At the time of creation, when God was creating everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that is, what did he always notice after creation? God looked and he saw that it was good. It was good. It was good except one thing. When God looked at one part of his creation, that was Adam, Before he created Eve, he looked at Adam and he said what? It is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. We need one another. We need to support one another. We need a community to cry with us when we cry and to rejoice with us when we rejoice. We need input and counsel and wisdom from others when we have important decisions to make. And so that's what is at the very heart of this structure that God lays out here in Deuteronomy 16 and 17. The structure at which we've been looking for the past couple of weeks, God doesn't want community fractured. God doesn't want community fractured. Or it won't be community. It would just be individual fragments lying around everywhere. He wants the community to be a cohesive whole because he has important world changing work to accomplish through his community. And so God gives them structure. We've read it several weeks. Officers, judges, priests, prophets, kings. And these individuals, God sets over the community for the sake of the community. 
so that the community can function well together. Now, when God's people enter the promised land, and when they are geographically separated in that land, God will not uh, allow for them to be spiritually separated or communally separated from one another. So if you look back in verse 16, you read there that God causes people to come back together again three times a year. That's every four months. They come together to the place that God chooses to celebrate these feasts, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Three times a year, come together. Geography can't separate. Local issues can't separate. Local culture cannot separate. And when those tribes who settle in the northern part of the Promised Land come down for these celebrations, and when they come down with their up-north ways, that's okay. And when those tribes who settle down here in the south, when they come up to those celebrations three times a year and they insist on calling everybody y'all, and they insist on bringing their deep fryer and barbecue sauce, that's okay. Three times a year they come together as one to renew and to be refreshed in their true identity, the children, the family of the living God. And to be reminded once again what's really important in life. And what's really important in life is that they are a community living together before the face of God. Moses, though he's the one giving these instructions to the people, he'll never see the promised land. He'll never, in, he'll never enter there. He'll never live out these instructions. He's going to die. But that's okay. Because it's not Moses' community. Joshua is going to succeed Moses. He's going to lead the people into the promised land and then he's going to die. But that's okay too. Because it's not Joshua's community. It's God's community. Shaped by God. Formed by God. Guided by God's truth. And it will live on. It will live on. One generation after another, after another, after another. Rugged individualism is not God's plan for his people community is. We can't read all the one another passages from the New Testament. There are too many of them. Like love one another deeply from the heart. Serve one another. Consider others better than yourselves. As God's chosen people, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. What do we need to do to open the ears of not just Americans, but even American Christians to hear God's truth? If individualism weren't a problem, I doubt the New York Times would have someone write about it or bother to put it in the paper for someone to read about it if it weren't a problem. Who would say that in the future there will be only one ism, individualism, if that is not the reality of the world in which we live? We live as spiritual islands unto ourselves. And we are, see ourselves as the ultimate authority, not only for our lives, but we see ourselves as the ultimate authority authority on God's word. 
What rules our lives too often is what I think and what God's word says to me. As if God has not put a structure in place that says exactly the opposite of that. In the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was a theocracy because they had no king, when God himself was their ruler, the structure God put in place governed all their lives. As we saw a few weeks ago, God didn't have a two-track system, a religious system over which God was the head and a secular uh, track over which God had no purview. No life was to be unified, a unified whole before the face of God. But you know the story. God's people were disobedient. They lost their sovereignty as a nation. They no longer ruled themselves. They were ruled over instead. They no longer made and lived by their own laws. They lived under the laws imposed upon them. The only thing over which they had control was their religious life. And into that world, Jesus came. Into that world, Jesus established his church, which Jesus also calls his body. We, the church, are the body of Christ. And this body, this church, has structure. Christ himself and no one else is head of the church. Now this is where you say, say it again. Christ and no one else is head of his church. Now turn to your neighbor and say, Christ himself and no one else is head of the church. Okay, now, now that's the truth. This community is also referred to as a flock. And Jesus is called the great shepherd over the flock. Additionally, God has appointed what are called under shepherds to serve under the great shepherd. Called by different names in the New Testament, bishop, overseer, presbyter, elder, But it is an office, and it is ordained by God. 1 Timothy 3.1 This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. An office ordained by God. In Acts chapter 14, we read about the mission trip of Paul and Barnabas. And when they had finished their trip, they backtracked. They visited again all the churches that they had planted. And scripture tells us when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. God ordains structure. And God ordains leadership so that the community, the community, can be all that we're supposed to be and do all that we are supposed to do. Leadership and structure so the community doesn't fracture into individual fragments, but we stay together as a unified whole. It isn't about the office or the person any more than ancient Israel was about Moses or Joshua. It wasn't their kingdom. It wasn't their community. It was God's. And they were simply servants of it. And so it is with the church. 
God-ordained elders are just servants of the community. And so when all of us here in this place this morning keep community in mind and our identity as a whole and what God wants us to accomplish together as a people, no one of us should rail against the command of Hebrews 13.7. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Elders, in some way, are responsible for the souls of the people whom they have oversight of. God says so. Elders, in some way, will give account to God for how they've stewarded those entrusted to them. God says so. The church is to submit to leadership. God says so. God says this as well. That we're all to submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This mutual submission. Are we hearing God's voice. Because when we are living for self, when we are demanding for self, when we are an authority unto ourselves, automatically we can't submit to others. And listen, living in community calls for great vulnerability. Did you ever notice that? Living your life before other people, entrusting your life to other people who are sinners like you are, a vulnerable thing, a a scary thing. Acknowledging that others who are looking from the outside into your life may have more insight into you than you have into yourself because all of us have blind spots. Things that we don't even know are true about ourselves, but other people see them. And so other people may actually be better able to counsel us and direct our lives than we can ourselves. Maybe not. But the point is that we try, that we trust God. Few people, and I am chief among them, I am chief among them. Few people want to give up their autonomy. And yet that's what God calls us to do. To seek the counsel and the prayer of others for our lives. To submit ourselves to others. And as we have seen it to be true over and over again, we see it to be true again this morning that the Lord does not ask anything of us. He's not asking anything of anybody in this room that he has not already done himself. How we love Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11, that tell us Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What is that but submission? In the same passage, passage commands us, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus.
John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That's submission. If Jesus had not submitted himself, his will to the will of another, we would literally have nothing. Because Jesus would have never come to earth. But maybe he would have been partly submissive. And maybe he would have come to earth, but while he was here, changed his mind and decided, no, I don't think I want to die on the cross. If Jesus had not submitted, if Jesus had not said, not my will, but your will be done, all of us would be lost and we would be without hope in this world both now and forever. And we would have absolutely no possibility of being redeemed because there would be no one who had paid the price to buy us back. But Jesus did live a life of submission, right? And we do have hope and we do have life now and forever and we are redeemed. We are redeemed. One more time. Last chance. We are redeemed. Surely, for the sake of the gospel, in the sake of the advance of the kingdom, we can submit ourselves to God's structure. We can submit ourselves to God's appointed leaders. We can submit ourselves to one another. And we can live together in community. Surely. For the sake of the gospel, we'll be willing to lay our thoughts and our ideas and our opinions right alongside the thoughts and the ideas and the opinions of others. And as we look at all of them together, we we seek not what is best for me, what is most convenient for me, what is most expedient for me, but rather we look at all those things and we say, what's best for the community? What will best enable us to make a difference in our community for Jesus' sake? Sometimes you're going to win, and sometimes you're going to lose. Battles between individuals are never going to cease. There will forever be differences of opinions. But when we keep in mind that together, as a community, we can accomplish so much more for the kingdom of God than we could ever accomplish individually, When we consider that when we pool together our resources and our strength, we can make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake much better than we can ever do on our own. Now, here's the deal. We can fight against community. We can say, I don't need community. Or we can say, I need community, but go ahead and live like we don't. But the reality is that God calls us to live in community and work through community that he has ordered and that he is structured. So everybody always wants to know, well, what, what, what do we do? Well, here's what you do. First, you pray. Truly, you pray for those who are in leadership. Those who are called to be elders. Those who are apparently, according to the word of God, those who will give account for your souls. Can you imagine Pray that we lead well. Pray that we live well. Pray that we would have the mind of Christ 
and the wisdom and the insight that can only be given to us by the Holy Spirit. We don't have it on our own, do we, guys? We don't. Pray that we'll submit ourselves and our lives to Christ. Pray that we'll acknowledge that we are empty vessels that must be filled by the Spirit of God and the truth of God in order for us to lead well. Pray those things for us, truly. Get involved in community. Do it. It's so easy here. We make it so easy here at Redeemer. Don't live off on your own. Apart from the care and the love of community, get involved in community. I feel like our community in Charleston, the Charleston community, I feel like we have made this monumental step forward last week. Don't you? And I choose in faith to believe that that is a true step forward. That it's not just for a photo op or a glowing op-ed. I believe that God has begun something very real. And I believe that we have to join God in this work. You know, but the woman at the drive-thru reminds me, you know, we, we have our work cut out for us. I'm reminded that at the very same moment that our nation and this world was watching the funeral that took place a block from right here. Where one preacher and one speaker after the other got up and spoke the words of the gospel. Where the name of Jesus Christ went out around the world time and time and time and time again. In that very same moment, that moment of triumph for the gospel and its impact on Charleston, at that same moment, our Supreme Court was issuing a decision that reminds us, even in that moment of victory, that there's much work for us to do. As a community, we have to work together, work together to be a community. A community that is so powerfully loving, so powerfully caring. A community that is so compelling that people would gladly lay aside isolationism. People would gladly lay aside individualism to be part of this community. Psalm 68, 6, God sets the lonely in families. He puts people in community. Why live a lonely life? Why doggedly embrace individualism? When I can be part of an amazing community and experience the amazing love of Christ. So for the sake of the gospel, not for my sake, for the sake of the gospel... Let's organize ourselves under God's structure. Let's submit ourselves to God's plan. Let's function together as one, a united front. And together let's move out into the community, as a community, for the sake of the community, for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you truly would convict our hearts. Convince our hearts to be the people that you have called us to be.
Father, throughout your word from the beginning to its end, we read of community. Father, we read of how you intend to bless the world through community. Through ancient Israel, through whom came our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now through the church. Father, it's your church. You have ordained it. You have established it. You have structured it. And you said, this structure, this church, will be my instrument in this world to advance my kingdom. So I pray, Lord, that we would so gladly take our place as one among many. That we would gladly be part of a community of other believers. That we would gladly join hands and link arms with this great vision, Lord, to to move out into the community that so needs your truth. They need what we have. The world needs what we have. They need the gospel. And Lord, they need to see the gospel at work in community. That's what will draw them. That's what will compel them as your spirit reveals it to their eyes. So Lord, we pray that you would do that in us and through us. Father, your word tells us you place the lonely in families. Father, we know that there are people who are lonely in this world, in this city, in this neighborhood, in this block in which this building stands. We pray, Lord, that you would set those people here in this place so that we can love them with the love of Jesus, so that we can make them part of this community, that they in turn can then go out and as part of this community, make a difference in Charleston and around the world for Jesus' sake. Lord, by faith we believe that you'll do it, and by faith we, your people, stand now and move forward from this place with the gospel on our lips, the love of Christ in our hearts. Make a difference through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.